This morning, as we get ready to read the scriptures, there's a question that hangs in the air. It's not necessarily a question that's phrased by the passage, but it is a question that the passage elicits. And that is, what do we want from Jesus? What are we expecting? Who do we want Jesus to be? Now, I know that that might sound odd, given that Jesus is who Jesus is, but we have to face the question of what we're actually looking for from Jesus. I'll say more about that in a little bit. Um, It's warming up outside, and I went for a walk recently, and I remembered going for a walk through the woods and thinking, huh, do I need to get ready for ticks? Do I need to check for ticks? Anybody enjoy taking walks and then feel like it's ruined because now you've got to worry about ticks? Last spring was an awful time for ticks around here. And then that gets you thinking about why are there ticks? And then you can't help but think about the next thing. Why are there mosquitoes? Don't we have a lot of questions for God? You know, aren't there a lot of questions we have? What we're about to read today comes after Jesus asks a question of those who are following him. Instead of us asking a question of God or of Jesus, Jesus asks a question. The question he asks simply is this, who do people say that I am? He says this to his disciples, who do people say that I am? What are you hearing? What, what are people saying about me? He's been going around and teaching the good news. He's been healing and curing. What are people saying? And what we say about who Jesus is says a lot about who we expect Jesus to be to us. Who we say Jesus is says a lot about who we expect Jesus to be to us. The people had been saying these things. The disciples said, well, you know, some are are saying that you're John the Baptist, come back. John had been beheaded by Herod, and that's quite a statement. Some are saying that you're Elijah the prophet. Elijah long ago was taken up by God into the heavens. He didn't die, and so there was this expectation of Elijah's return, and some were saying that Jesus was Elijah. Others are saying that you're one of the prophets, that idea that yet another prophet has come. Now, each of these answers is quite amazing when we stop and think about it. The idea that someone has come back to life, you know, that's been killed, or someone who went up to heavens and and the scriptures speak of someday returning has come back, or yet another great prophet. Each of these are quite amazing statements. The people had high expectations. They were seeing that he was someone special, different from the others who've come before and claimed to be something, and there were many. We have a lot of information going back and seeing many who claimed to be somebody and weren't. But people could see that Jesus was something different. So Jesus asks, who do people say that I am? And then after getting those answers from the disciples, he next says, who do you say that I am? Looking directly at the disciples, 
Who do you say that I am? It's a question that each of us must answer. It's a question that we cannot avoid. It is a watershed question. To answer that question is to go down one direction or another. Who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ. The Christ. Now, I could say the Christ, and out there in the world, people don't really know anything about that word, what it means, other than it's part of a swear word for them. But the Christ meant the anointed one, the Messiah, the promised one of God, the one that God had promised would come and they would just rub God's love into all of humanity. The promised one. Peter makes the bold claim, you are the Christ. And what we are about to read now is the fallout to that answer. So I ask that you'd pray with me that our eyes, our hearts, everything within us would be open, that we might truly take in what Jesus has to teach us in his word. Let's pray. Oh Lord, may you guide us. May you make this a moment in which we truly wrestle with who you are and what that means for each of us. Help us, O oh Lord, to hear your word. In this Lenten season, this season of preparation, this season in which we recommit ourselves to following you, help us, O oh Lord, to hear and take in fully your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We're reading from Mark chapter 8, the 31st verse through the 38th verse. Again, following upon Peter saying, you are the Christ. And he, that is Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and Seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowds to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? 
For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It is an absolutely astounding change. To go one moment from saying, you are the Christ, to hearing in almost the next moment, get behind me, Satan. Who of us could have borne such a rebuke? Who of us could take Jesus looking in our eyes and calling us Satan? I think we need to back up and realize what's happening here. Jesus has just asked them, who do you say that I am? And, and Peter, on behalf of them, has said, you are the Christ. And so then he says, then it says, he began to teach them. He began to teach them. It's one way of saying, well, you know, he started to teach again. But in many ways, this is not that they've now gotten the answer to the final exam and they're all done. It's now not the end, but the beginning. Now is the time where Jesus is fully being revealed. He's been teaching the good news of the kingdom of heaven. He's been healing and now there's the identifying that you are the Christ and he begins to teach them. And what's he teaching them? What is the start? What is the new beginning that's starting here? He starts to talk about the son of man, which was his way of confirming when they've said you are the Christ. The son of man was a term thrown around for that Messiah, that expected anointed one, that Christ that is to come. The son of man comes from Daniel chapter 7, it's a strong allusion. One of the strongest allusions to the Son of Man is in Daniel chapter 7, in which there's this throne room image in which the Ancient of Days is seated upon the throne, and, and in comes one like a Son of Man who is given by God all authority, all dominion for all time. That's the one who's expected to come. And they've just said, you are that one. And he begins to teach them about the Son of Man. They've gotten an idea about the Son of Man, and they've created all that this is going to mean. They're expecting and waiting for his return. And he starts out by saying, the Son of Man, three things are going to happen. Must suffer many things be rejected by all the religious leaders and be killed. Suffering, rejection, and be killed. The first two, suffering and rejection, okay, maybe that makes sense. I mean, there's this expectation the Son of Man is going to come and, and put down everyone, all the other rulers, and, and finally we will have will be the exalted kingdom and everyone else will look to us. So there's probably going to be some suffering in that process. There are people that are going to reject this one, but that won't last. But no one anticipated it'd be the very leaders 
of their own people who would reject and be responsible for that suffering. And no one had any idea that the Son of Man, the promised one that would have all authority, all power, all dominion for all time, no one talked about him being killed. This is radical, what Jesus is saying to them. And it gets to the heart of the question that I asked at the start. Who do you want Jesus to be for you? What do you want from Jesus? You see, because as he says these things, Peter can't stand it. And I'm sure he wasn't the only one. He could see that, hey, look, we've left everything to follow you. We've been with you. We've been seeing what you're doing. And he's getting the sense that Jesus is just a little off course. You know, every now and then a leader needs a little help from those who are around them. Like, hey, you're, you're missing something. And Peter kind of pulls him aside. doesn't want to embarrass him in front of everyone. He doesn't say a huge question in front of everyone. He rather pulls him aside and says, hey, look, you're on the wrong path. And Jesus, looking over his shoulder, looking back at the disciples who were watching, turns to Peter, that one who is one of the three that get to be on the internal of all sorts of things that Jesus does. And he says, get behind me, Satan. It's an enormous rebuke. To rebuke is to speak against, to say no. That is completely wrong. That is opposite. It's, it's not trying to get by or maybe, no, that is wrong. He says, you have set your mind not on the things of God, but on the things of man. And here is our great danger, our great danger. That from the beginning, ever since we partook of that fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. We have wanted to either be like God or shape God into who we want God to be. We have an idea of who God should be. The rest of the world has an idea, if they believe in a God, of what God should be like. We could go and hold interviews and say, who is God and what do you think God is like? Would God do this? And we'll get yeses and nos depending on what image people have, including us, of who God should be and of who the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one should be. In the garden, the serpent, the representative, the Satan, the devil, the evil one, didn't just speak in opposites, but rather distorted the truth. He says to Eve, did God really say you can't eat of any tree in the garden? And Eve's like, well, no, God didn't say that. But notice the distortion. God just told them they couldn't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He didn't say you couldn't eat from any tree, but already distorting, deceiving. Eve says, no, we just can't eat from this tree or else we'll die. The serpent says, oh, you won't die. 
For God knows that if you eat of this tree, you will be like God. So why does Jesus say to Peter, no, you've got it wrong, or why, instead of something like that, that you've got it wrong, or you're completely off, he says, get behind me, Satan. Because it's the deception, the distortion of the truth. We need to be very clear as followers of Jesus Christ who he is. And he wanted to be very clear. As he told them about the Son of Man, it says here that he spoke plainly, meaning he didn't speak in parables. He didn't use metaphors or other object lessons. He said straight up what was going to happen. That he would suffer, that he'd be rejected, and that he'd be killed. And then that other part that they didn't even have any grasp of, that he'd be raised on the third day. He spoke plainly. There was no, well, maybe he meant no. He spoke plainly. He was serious in every way. He was revealing to the 12 exactly who he was and what was going to happen. And it didn't look like anything that they or any other good Jew in the time expected. Our struggle is, is it what we expect? We can look back over our shoulder over history and have the advantage of being the Monday morning quarterback, but are we in a place to have a good enough view of who Jesus is? Because he feels strongly enough about being clear about who he is and why he came that he says to one of his best and most favorite disciples, get behind me, Satan. And not only that, to set matters completely clear, the next thing he does is astounding. He's just rebuked Peter. The disciples are watching from over there. And now he turns and he calls upon all the crowd that's nearby. He calls all the crowd to him and the disciples to him. In other words, he calls everybody around and he's going to set it straight. And if we're not listening, we're missing who he is and who he's calling us to be. During this Lenten season, a season in which we have to be honest with ourselves and reflect honestly, are we truly worshiping God? Are we truly worshiping the Son that God sent? Are we truly worshiping the Holy Spirit who continues to guide us? Are we listening? He calls all around him and he goes very clearly at the situation. Hear again what he says. If anyone would come after me, would follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. He's just pointed out to Peter that Peter's mind, his heart was on his own thinking he set his mind on the things of man. 
not on the things of God. The problem with the image that we make of Jesus is often it's so much smaller than who Jesus really is. It's not just that we get it wrong in some ways, it's that we make him too small. He says, look, if anyone's going to follow me, the first thing you need to do is deny yourself. Deny, I mean, well, there's all things we can deny ourselves. We can, we can, you know, give up candy for Lent, or in my case, trying to give up Diet Coke. That hasn't worked very well. We can deny ourselves something for a little while, but that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about denying our claim on who he should be. Denying our claim on way we think this life and this world should work out. There's a whole host of Christians here in North America who believe that by following Jesus, your life is going to be better. That you'll be blessed and have more things. And that's not what the gospel is. That's not the good news of Jesus. We say, well, yeah, we know, but we still hope that we'll be blessed. And blessing in our mind turns to more things and more stuff and less bad things will happen to us. That's where our mind turns. And that's not what Jesus is about. We've made him too small. He didn't come just to heal a bunch of people. He came to heal us from our ultimate problem. That we are so broken that we turn to ourselves over and over again. That we make it about us over and over again. Oh, I know many of us here are not selfish people at all. We're really good and kind people. But in the end, we still are about ourselves. Some of us have learned by doing good to other people, we feel good, and when we feel good, it's all about us. And so we do more good things, so we feel good. Or we get the praise from people. That's, again, not what it's about. Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you need to deny yourself. And then he says, to take up your cross. That's an image. I can only begin to imagine how that was first heard. We hear it looking back from him going through the cross, but they didn't know that then. But they knew what the cross was. The cross was torture. The cross was death. The cross was execution. But more than that, it was everything leading up to it. One of the things that people feared and it was horrifying was the fact that you were stripped down you were berated as you carried, after being whipped and beaten, you carried that cross that you were going to be killed on. You carried it through town as everyone derided you. None of us wants to be stripped down and have everybody berating us. I mean, it's awful. The image that Jesus gives is an image in which he's calling on us to die to ourselves, to let go of what we're holding on to. We have questions for God that when we finally get there, we're going to ask, you know, why the ticks? Why the mosquitoes? When I was in South Carolina, why the cockroaches? These are our questions. God's question to us is going to be, why did you keep holding on? 
What was so important that you had to hold on to when you had me? Jesus says, if anyone's going to follow me, they need to deny themselves and pick up their cross. And just in case we are lost in the metaphor and think, well, maybe he meant something else, he hits on it over and over again. He says it another way. He says this. He says, those of you who want to save your life, if you're trying to preserve it, Keep as much as you can. Hold on to as much as you can. Keep everything the way you want it, as much as you can. Still trying to follow me, have a foot in the boat and a foot on the dock, having it both ways. Those who want to save their life are going to end up losing it. To follow me is to really let go. And those who lose their life for my sake, and he says, the sake of the gospel, the good news of God, the good news of God's love, those who lose their life for my sake and the sake of the good news will save their lives. What he's saying to us is that we can't find life on the path that we are on. The only life to be found is the path of Jesus. Letting go of what we think life should be and how life should go and what we should get out of it, that's not a path that leads to life. The path that leads to life is a path where we let that go and now live as Jesus would have us live. Not just doing the right things, but living for Jesus, living for his good news, living so that others might know that God loves them so much despite all of their brokenness. He sent his son, his son, to die for them, to die for us, to die for you. This is one of those sermons I was not excited to preach because it's not happy. But yet it is happy. He's calling us to release and let go and fully trust in him. To be like the psalmist to realize God is the one who can pull us out of the miry bog and set our feet on solid ground. He alone is our hope. A hope that no one else can take away, as Paul says in the letter to the Romans. Nothing, neither height nor depth, Neither angels or rulers or powers, nothing, sword, nothing, persecution, nothing can separate you from the love of God through Jesus Christ. Nothing. He goes on, making the point, speaking plainly. He says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his soul for What can a man give to retain a soul? Nothing. We don't have the ability. We can't buy our soul. There's nothing we can do. And the definition of grace that I've often given, it's a free gift that we don't deserve, could never earn or ever repay. We can't do that. And Jesus says, you know, what if you were to get everything in life that you want, everything you wanted, all the world, let's say you got everything, every way, you were the richest, brightest, everything, you got it all. What does it matter if you don't have your soul? Eternity was explained to me once this way. 
And the promise and the hope we have in Jesus is eternal life. Eternity was explained to me this way. Go to the beach, take a pebble from the beach. Walk to the other side of the world, put that grain of sand down. Walk back, let's assume you can walk over the ocean, and get another grain of sand and walk back and put that grain of sand and keep doing that till you've moved the whole coastal beach to the other side of the world. And when you've done that, do it the same way in reverse and move it back. And once you've done that, you haven't even begun eternity. Jesus, the Son of God, is looking at us and all the things we're holding on to, and he's just mind-blown by how foolish we are holding on to what we see when he knows what's before us. Sometimes the image we have of Jesus is so small compared to who he is. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed. Shame, being ashamed is when we know our, our, our status is being knocked down, when we know it's costing us and we're losing credit. Middle, high, middle school students and high school students know this very well, but the rest of us still live it. We, we have a certain credit we're building all the time. And to be ashamed is having that torn down in front of us and, and seeing the disparity of that. And Jesus is saying, hey, look, if you're ashamed of me, and of my good news, then don't be surprised when I'm ashamed of you. And then he adds, when he comes again with all the angels. In other words, when the Son of Man is fully in full dominion and authority and power, because that still is going to come. As Christians today, we are called to live in a manner that is fully after Christ to get up daily and die to ourself and to live for him, knowing that our hope is secured, not in what we do, but in what he has done, and knowing that he is coming again. We have nothing for which to be ashamed. Jesus said all of this very plainly, very sternly and very directly. He didn't hide it. He didn't give it just to Peter. He gave it to the disciples and the whole crowd. He was not hiding this. It was not something to be ignored or hope maybe that's only a small part of our Christian faith. It is at the center. He came to give his life for us. And now... He calls us to give our life for him. May we so shall live. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you've called us to love one another as you loved us. You gave us this new commandment just before going to the cross. Help us to love one another sacrificially. Help us to give as you have given. Help us to die to ourselves so that we might live for you. 
Help us no longer to set our minds on the things of man, but to set them once again on you and your good news. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The gospel writer John records for us that Jesus saying, said this, I came that you might have life and have it to the full, to have it abundantly. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit that is with you always be with you this day and forevermore. Amen.